Hello, welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. I'm Hal Whitman. And we are editors of National Affairs. National Affairs, the quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. Aims to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life and rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. It's published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we're very excited to be joined by Dr. Stephen Smith. Stephen is the Alfred Cowles Professor of Political Science at Yale University, and his scholarship has focused particularly on the problem of the ancients and the moderns, the relation of religion to politics, and theories of representative government. He is the author of numerous books, most recently Reclaiming Patriotism in an Age of Extremes. For our winter 2023 issue, Stephen wrote an essay about the Federalist Papers and their author's complicated relationship with the Republican tradition. The Federalists called the Constitution they crafted Republican, but they made some important departures from classical Republicanism, redefining this form of government for a new age. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Hey, all, Dan. It's great to be with you. Yes, great to have you as well, Stephen. And so we want to start um, this conversation with the start of your essay. Uh, So your first line is really interesting. You write that the greatest obstacle to reading the Federalist Papers is that we we all think we know what the book is about before we even open it. Uh, So just Mm. to start... We wanted to ask you, um, you know, well, first of all, what are the Federalist Papers? What do we think we know about them? And then why did you think it was important to write this essay to kind of um, provide some more context about what they're really about? You know, what, what kind of inspired you to write this? Great. Uh, thanks for that question, Dan. Um, that that observation that you read, uh, we all think that we know what it's about, is actually uh, something that's grown out of teaching the Federalist Papers over the years. I've taught it's a book I've taught many times. Some sometimes just with snippets or with a few of the Federalist letters, few, few of the numbers, and sometimes it's the book as a whole. And I always have difficulty uh, sort of convincing students uh, that the Federalist Papers is an important work of political theory because they just assume. Uh, that it is a book that is about, and which is certainly correct, it is a book attempting to defend the basic structure of the Constitution that was elaborated at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia with the various uh, institutional uh, recommendations that were put out on the table, you know, for a bicameral uh, legislature, a six-year terms for senators, uh, Supreme Court, et cetera, et cetera. We, Mm -hmm. We know that. And that's what students tend to focus on. They tend to think, well, that's basically what it's about. And, you know, we've had these institutions for a long time. Sort of what what really is there to what what more is there to say about it? Sometimes uh, reading reading the arguments can be can be can be interesting. But for the most part, we already know where the argument is going. So, (laughs) you know, they, they, they lose an incentive for really engaging with the text in my essay, uh, which was a short essay, but still uh, came out of a lot of uh, teaching of the book, was it was an attempt to show that the Federalist authors were engaged in, uh, in many ways, a revolutionary piece of political theory as, as profound, as deep, as fundamental uh, as any of the great books we would study in any kind of standard philosophy or political theory class. This kind of where what it started with. Fascinating. Um, so, Stephen, sticking in a similar vein of what people tend to think 
uh, most people seem to view republicanism as basically synonymous with the American form of government. Uh, mm-hmm. That is synonymous with the regime established by the Constitution that the right. Federalist Papers promoted. Yeah. Um, but as you explain, there's actually a long tradition of thought about republics that right. preexisted the U.S. Constitution. And, of course, you focus particularly on the classical idea of the republic mm-hmm. in ancient Rome um, and on the Renaissance version of republican thought that you see in the writings of, of Machiavelli and certain mm-hmm. English theorists. So uh, if you could, um, can you give us a brief overview of these early stages of Republican thought uh, for the benefit of those who might just be familiar with the American version? Right. Uh, Yeah, I mean, one of the claims I want to make in the article is that uh, when Publius, which is the uh, name that the three authors of the Federalist Papers Hamilton, Madison, and Jay, the, the the kind of pseudonym that they that they took, which goes harkens back to ancient Rome. Uh, they were reviving and as well as revising uh, an ancient form of political regime, the Republic, uh, which had largely, to, with you know some exceptions, but had largely disappeared from uh, the political world. Most regimes, uh, at least in the European world, the one that they were moving up, were, were monarchies. Uh, republics were seemed to be things of the past. There were, you know, small outposts of republican rule in places like Switzerland or uh, in, the, in some of the Italian city-states. But these were small and they were uh, really in some ways on the kind of the margin of the margins of things. So the idea of creating a modern republic was itself a revolutionary uh, act and one that required the authors of the book to engage with a kind of serious uh, reflection on the history of republics and republican institutions. They took, the, again, they took the name Publius. That goes back to the founding, kind of mythic founding of the ancient Roman Republic, uh, as told in, in famous famous histories of Roman historians. Of the early monarchs were overthrown by by Brutus and his uh, comrade Publius, and Publius, whose name the Federalist authors took was the one who helped to establish uh, the Roman the Roman Republic, uh, and the Republic again. Uh, Broadly, you know, people may be familiar with something, some of the outlines of the Roman Republic, but that was republicanism uh, became revived in the modern world by Machiavelli. Uh, Machiavelli in his most, uh, well, maybe not his most famous book, his most famous book is The Prince, but in his book called The Discourses on Livy, Mm -hmm. uh, Livy was the historian of the ancient Roman Republic, and he in Machiavelli, by um, writing what was kind of a very loose-limbed commentary on the uh, on Livy, was trying to revive republicanism in his world, the world of uh, 16th century Florence, the world of the Italian Renaissance, mm-hmm. and to bring that Roman republicanism back to life somehow. Uh, he departed in many ways, many added many innovations of his own, on the Roman model, but still uh, Rome became the standard which to look. And that 
that took root also um, in England in the uh, 17th century. Uh, we often forget that uh, we think of the Glorious Revolution, but the Glorious Revolution was preceded by an English civil war yeah. where a monarch was dethroned and, and beheaded uh, mm -hmm. in a republic. Uh, it was a short-lived republic, and it didn't work very well, but a republic was Britain had a brief experience with Republican government, and a number of political writers of that era uh, most famously, a man named Harrington, uh, another one by the name of Sidney, and perhaps not as well known as Locke, but nevertheless, who sort of tried to defend a version of republicanism in uh, in England. Now, the, the republic was not necessarily what we would think of as a republic, and English republicans were still uh, in many ways uh, – saw their thinking as consistent with a kind of constitutional monarchy, but with a important role for uh, parliament and the people in some ways. But uh, this was the thinking that the, the, what was called the, the radical Whigs of the, of the 17th and 18th century. It was this thinking that was to some degree, especially after the monarchy was re restored after 1689, it was this thinking that was kind of marginal in England, but had come to America in the 18th century and really established the framework in which many of the revolution, many of those of the revolutionary generation saw, the, saw themselves. And of course, that's a story that's been told very well by great historians like Gordon Wood and Bernard Balin, who uh, focused on the uh, the importance of this kind of English Republican Whig thought on the American framers, and ultimately that led to the uh, the way in which the the, 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 uh, the Federalist authors came to think about uh, Republicanism. You write that from now on, a republic would be how the new Publius chose to define it. So, so what was right. what was the innovation that the authors of the Federalist Papers came up with of a new type yeah. of a modern republic, as as you said? Right. Yeah, I mean, one of the claims I make in the paper, and I want to uh, maybe I exaggerate it, but I, I think it's it's basically true, is that the Federalist authors were engaged in a piece of conceptual revolution in a way, not just a mm -hmm. political revolution, but a conceptual revolution, which completely transformed in many ways this idea of a republic and, and in a number of ways, two or three ways. I mean, let me just suggest uh, three, I believe. Sure. Um, in the first case, uh, it was widely believed by just about everybody uh, and the touchstone for this uh, was a French political theorist uh, by the name of Montesquieu, the Baron de Montesquieu, that republics were only possible in a small, uh, in a small. They, they required a small community. Right. Uh, large states were suitable for monarchies. Republics were only for small states, and Publius in a way, turned this on its head by showing that you could have a large-scale republic. So that's one, um, that's one important and very important conceptual innovation. And many, many Americans at the time, by the way, uh, the ones typically thought of as what we call today anti-federalists because they opposed the, the new constitution, they did so on these traditional grounds, a, a, a big 
state of the kind that the Federalist authors could imagine was incompatible with with self-government, with popular rule in some way. That's why you needed something closer to the Articles of Confederation or something that preserved the autonomy of individual states, because those looked more like these, even though some of them were quite large, in fact, Virginia and other places like that were quite large. Nevertheless, they, they, they retained the the kind of autonomy of the uh, small city state or the small republic. So that was one one area in which they were very different from from the the, uh, the, the traditional understanding of a republic. Yeah. And Stephen, if we could uh, just another, jump in there after sure, that first point, absolutely. I just want to ask, and this is something we were going to ask later, but we'll go ahead and bring it up. Um, yeah, as you say, the Federalist developed the idea that you could extend the sphere of the republic for a big nation and kind of balance these factions, which I'm sure you'll talk about later. But, you know, is in a population that's as big as today with 330 million people, I mean, is there ever a point where the nation gets too big to extend the republic in, in this idea that the Federalists talked about? Uh, that's a great question. And uh, we may be getting there. I'm not sure. I, okay. You know, they imagined a large republic. I don't think they could have imagined a place of 300 million people that was actually <laughs> self-governing. Sure, uh, sure. And, and to be to be sure, as uh, fractured... Uh, as we are now, uh, the fact that we do uh, more or less continue to abide by the same, you know, constitutional rules and so on that Publius establishes itself a, a, a kind of miracle almost that we sure. we do. And we, when we think of how many uh, other countries that have had, you know, uh, just take France, for example, but has had multiple republics over the years. Five, they're in their fifth now. You know, it's been a very un- republicanism there has, has been very unstable. And uh, while ours has certainly had had important transformations over time, uh, nevertheless, the fact that even in our time, which seems hardly something the Federalists could have imagined the technologies and the size and so many other things that we do still seem to imagine. Now, are we at a tipping point? Well, possibly, and although uh, it remains to be seen. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, but yeah, but uh, yeah, please continue with the, the other two points you were talking about with um, the, the innovations in the Federalist Papers of Republicanism. When we when we talk about um, the English model of, of republicanism, in, in the English model, which was to some degree still the ideal uh, for certain American writers like John Adams, for mm-hmm. example, the English model represented for him the model of of a kind of mixed government was called mixed government. It had the the monarch, the aristocracy, the the people, the commons. It was the three great estates of the realm. And the idea was that this mixture of the three estates, uh, an idea that goes back to Polybius in the Roman period as well, uh, that it was that balance, that mixture of the three estates that, that, maintained uh, freedom because no one of the of the estates was able to tyrannize or, or dominate over the other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that has a kind of faint um, uh, echo in our in our ideas about separation of powers and the like. We've incorporated some of that. Sure. But the Federalists also rejected the idea of mixed government if that meant 
that that government was to represent different classes and and permanent estates. No, they said, we're not going to represent people by terms of their uh, class or by terms of their, their, well, in England, of course, they have hereditary classes in a way. We're not going to represent people by classes. We're going to represent them by, they're going to be represented by constituencies. And we will have, and all the offices will be open to election. So the idea of election uh, of for all offices of government uh, fundamentally changed the uh, the nature of what of, of what a republic was. It was no longer just going to be a mix or a balance of of the permanent estates of society, but there would be free and competitive elections for every uh, for every representative office. And that mm-hmm. that of course brings me to the third area of of renovation or or transformation is that the rep is that the republic would be a representative republic all the way down uh and that's they knew they were doing something uh difficult here because uh they said all offices would be directly or as madison wrote i believe it was madison indirectly uh elected by the people what what, what do they mean by indirectly uh, all of a sudden republics which seem to validate uh, the people and the people's role in government what does it mean to say they will only indirectly be consulted and of course we see that in the way uh of course the Constitution has been changed in the way that senators were were elected through their state representatives, or the way that even today presidents are elected by the uh, by the uh, electoral college. Right. These seem to be at a distance from the people themselves. But the idea was uh, of the of the Federalists, even though they took the name Republicanism, which suggests again popular government, popular control of government. They wanted to, in many ways, restrain the uh, the role of the people in actual political decision making. And that move, I think, has probably in some respect been the most, in many ways, the most controversial one today and which has given rise to a great deal of the discontent we feel with the Federalist Constitution, that uh, our representatives seem remote, are they responsive to the people? Uh, in fact, we no longer, for the most part, um, when we refer to our form of government, we very rarely refer to it as a republic. We we think of it as, as a democracy. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of been a renewed debate today about democracies. Are we a democracy or a republic? Um, but the idea of the, the Founders' Republic was in a way to keep the people, um, they had to be consulted to be sure, but to filter uh, the representation served to use their, the federal term, it's a filter. The purpose of a representative wasn't simply to provide a, a kind of mirror of society, just a, a reflection of the classes and the interests that constitute society. That would just Re- reproduce those same class. The idea was that representation would filter uh, popular opinion and popular passions in the way that, say, um, the the image I use in the paper is the, is the way that the 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 R is uh, is extracted from the uh, from the dross, you know, of in, in in the process of smelting. They saw they saw representation as a form of refinement. And the idea of producing enlightened and refined 
representatives, not just, uh, as it were, uh, stand-ins for the people, but Mm -hmm. people who uh, genuinely could bring a certain kind of enlightenment and deliberation to to, to the issues. These are things that uh, fundamentally uh, changed the the language uh, in which republicanism was debated. And and I would want to say, let me, I'll end with this, uh, to some degree, but the way that Madison and Hamilton re- redefined republicanism is for the most part the way everybody who refers to popular government or democracy today thinks about it. Large scale, mm-hmm. representative, uh, a, a society composed of, we talked about this, multiple interests and factions. These are all innovations of Publius, and they re, they fundamentally just redefined the terms of the game. Yeah, I think that's a very compelling response to, uh, as you mentioned, sort of democratic critiques of the Constitution. And actually in your essay, you quote 20th century intellectual Hannah Arendt, making one of these critiques and saying that this federalist attempt to limit direct political action uh, actually constituted a, a betrayal of the spirit of the revolution. So, yeah, it's it's interesting to hear uh, yeah, about the, the sort of benefits of, of, as you said, what Madison called indirect election. And as you've kind of indicated, this principle of representation of indirect election was supposed to kind of combine popular government with the selection of the best or most able candidates, combining consent with wisdom, as you said in your essay. So I guess uh, shifting more to contemporary challenges uh, and and circumstances, how do you think our government has been doing lately at, at maintaining this balance of this representative balance of popular government and selection of, of the best candidates in recent decades. Well, in a word, uh, miserably. But, uh, <laughs> that, that, that doesn't really get us any. That doesn't really get us anywhere. You know, uh, <laughs> we can sit disagree. here and turn it into a gripe session for everything. But you know, where where does it where where does it ultimately get you? However, things could be worse, and they probably will be. You know, before too long. But <laughs> having, having said that. Yeah, having said that, one of the things I learned from this essay, or you know, learned in teaching the Federalist Papers and writing it, is in certain respects how different the Federalist authors thought about certain themes and issues of republic self-government. I'll call it self-government, than, than we do t- today. For example, the idea of the separation of powers, and I talk about this in my essay. Your listeners can read when the Federalists used the language of separation of powers. Once again, Montesquieu was very influential here. Montesquieu had written about the British Constitution, praised it as the the home of liberty, and a lot of that had to do with the British model of the separation of powers. And that language that Montesquieu used was very much adopted by the anti-federalists who wanted to thought of the different branches of government as each operating in independent silos of one another. Executive will be here, and the legislature will be there, and the judiciary will be there. And they would each represent independent, uh, again, silos of, of authority. That's not how the Federalists 
thought about the separation of powers. Uh, they saw that powers, much more talk about this, is, is overlapping with one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they would exercise a kind of checking on each other and a ba- checking and a not so much a separation of power, but a checking and a balancing of power. And they had to do that by each office as it were, jealously guarding and keeping an eye on each other, not one another, but each of the different branches of government. So today we often hear, for example, those who argue for what's sometimes called the unitary theory of the of the executive, uh, giving the executive a kind of autonomy from oversight, from Congress. And that was not what the Federalist Papers had in mind. In fact, that was the model they rejected, uh, which is why they thought that uh, presidential uh, appointments needed, you know, the the support of the Senate, why why there's... um, a clause about impeachment and so on, because the powers needed to be uh, mixed in that way, blended. Uh, there's a talk about this. He said, that it, uh, I think I believe it's Madison. Uh, says it's only when one branch of government is completely under the authority of another that that tyranny tyranny begins, mm-hmm. and. Um, we don't have that. We, we certainly don't have that situation. No one branch of government is just dominant or completely controls the other. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they did not favor this idea that the powers should be so separated that they have nothing, in a, in a way, in common with each other. That's not. That, that was not. So I, I, that was a, an important uh, for me. It was at least an important uh, fact uh, that I learned from from doing this paper, and that um, I think is an important uh, reminder today when we when we hear, we often do, the language of the separation of powers and so on, what, what the Federalists really, really meant by it, because I don't think it's what a lot of people mean when they talk, when they use that term. Yeah, no, it's, it's very interesting, Stephen, and I think a couple of things we wanted to ask um, toward the end of our conversation here are about maybe what you would call the shortcomings or omissions or incompleteness of the Federalist Papers. Mm-hmm. I think you... There's a couple in particular that we, that struck us as interesting, and one, the idea that there's not a lot in the Federalist Papers about religion or religious education or how to have like mm-hmm. a moral religious citizenry, and the second idea being that how do you groom or inculcate virtues or future statesmen to lead this republic? So we'll, let's start with right. the we'll start with the people first. Uh, we thought of this this line that it's often you know or that John Adams wrote that's um, a famous one where he says that. Um, our constitution was made only for moral religious people is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Um, but as you kind of already suggested, the way that Madison and others wrote the Federalist Papers and defend the constitution was sort of not necessarily promoting a certain ideal of virtue or rooting out certain vices, but to kind of lower it a little bit, focus more on harnessing people's self-interest to protect liberty, mm-hmm. life, and property. And so in some ways, you could maybe say the way this government is structured with its its checks and balances and separation of powers that it could, you know, effectively govern an, an immoral people. But yeah, is that right? Did 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 John Adams have a point here, or was was his his view more of a classical Republican ideal than the, the new sort of republic the founders created? Could, help right. us kind of work through some of these tensions here about um, what the Constitution and the Federalist Papers said about having a moral religious people. Right. No, I think in many ways he's absolutely right. One critique, which I think you could make of the Federalist authors, is they, in many ways, rely, and I'll exaggerate here, but again, I'm not sure that I'm. this is off target, 
that they rely and in many ways deliberately rely on institutions alone to do much of the work. You know, I'm thinking of the famous line from Immanuel Kant when he said, you know, people, a republic can be even a nation of devils, he says, if they, if they are, so long as they are rational, you know, as long as they follow their interests, you know, yeah. it doesn't matter what their ethics or morality is, they can still make a, a republican government if they follow their, if they, if they know what they're, if they follow their interests. Mm-hmm. And in a certain sense, the Federalists, I think, uh, thought of, of institutions as in many ways trying to constrain, control action, and mm-hmm. didn't give uh, because, of course, the papers were themselves, uh, they were a defense of the, of the framework of the Constitution. They did not give the kind of attention that I think Republicanism has. I mean, Republicanism always believed that a people had to be have a certain kind of what they would call in the tradition was called virtue, certain kind of ethical and moral virtues, self restraint, self reliance, and others mm-hmm. kind of basic equality, a certain public spiritedness. You know, a set of. Uh, of moral qualities that were needed, just apart from the institutional fix uh, that was needed to sustain a republic. Uh, Those weren't as important in monarchies and autocracies and other ones, but republics required the certain kind of civic virtue on the part of of people. And it's hard to find that in in the Federalist authors. it's partly, I think, because in a way they presupposed they lived in a society which put a great emphasis upon these qualities. So perhaps they didn't feel it was necessary to uh, to develop them, develop this argument at length. But, mm-hmm. you know, over time, these these qualities decline and erode. And when we look at the when we look at the Federalist Papers today, uh, we're sometimes struck, at least I'm often struck by the absence uh, of that kind of concern, which, again, was, was so central to the to the older Republican tradition. I think it's kind of a bit written out of the, the constitutional settlement that, that the Federalist authors advanced. As for uh, moving past the people to our leaders, you know, you, you uh, earlier voiced some dissatisfaction with the, the caliber of, of our republic's current leaders. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we and probably just about everyone listening would would uh, would join you in that dissatisfaction. Um, and I yeah, there seems to be um, on left and right a sense that, that we lack great or even good statesmen. Um, right, forget and, great, yeah. Just yeah. even, you know, even often just, just basic character, you know, is, is missing. Exactly, yeah, definitely. So... Um, and, you know, in your essay, you indicated that the Federalists um, may have committed an oversight in failing to directly provide for the inculcation um, and kind of cultivation of future statesmen, not just of right. virtuous citizens, but of of, of, of leaders uh, with Republican virtue. Um, and that, that they did a really good job maybe of minimizing the damage of bad leaders, but didn't, mm-hmm. again, put the infrastructure in place that would create good ones. So do you think that omission is partly responsible um, for our current poverty of, of leadership? Yeah. And then I guess is a sort of like uh, maybe part B, if you, you also kind of indicated that maybe 
Abraham Lincoln in the Lyceum Address showed a greater understanding of this problem of, of statesmanship. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's where where the paper ends. And I think in many ways, it's one of the most difficult failures, if it were, of, of Publius, is that they didn't really consider how future statesmen uh, would be trained, would be educated. In fact, they were concerned, in fact, to, to look at the opposite problem. They, you know, one of my favorite lines, which seems to be one of the great understatements of all of human history, is when Madison writes in Federalist 10, enlightened statesmen will not always be at the helm. Uh, yeah, really. Uh, and his idea was, or the, their idea was to create a constitution that could survive even, you know, generations of un, unenlightened statesmen. You know, they were more fearful of the rise of demagogues. I mean, one of the themes that's in the background very much and often in the foreground of the text is, the you know, Shays Rebellion was kind of on their minds, but the, yeah. the rise of demagogues and tyrants of some kind, their, their idea was to try to shrink uh, the role of leadership and executive power, make it, make it small to prevent to prevent the rise of, of uh, you know, later demagogic figures, kind of like like Jackson might be the first 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 one, and so they they tried to they were they were very good on seeing the uh, problems posed by uh, in in a popular government of the appeal of demagogues and people like that, but that also blinded them to what would be the the need and the, the ongoing need for a certain kind of leadership and statesmanly leadership. Uh, Where was that going to come from? You know, people like themselves in a way. How were they they to be reproduced? Mm -hmm. Um, They didn't think much about that. Mm -hmm. And um, in in a certain respect, you know, America has been very lucky. Uh, you know, we produced an Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. Uh, would not have seemed obvious, you know. We, we <laughs> produced an Abraham Lincoln. Uh, we produced an FDR, you know, in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. You know, we've we've sort of been lucky at, in, in moments of great crisis mm-hmm. uh, where really the, the survival of the republic seemed at stake. We, we were able to get leaders who were able to see us through and uh, and reaffirm what we are. But that seems to be uh, have less to do uh, because of the Federalist authors, but in a certain sense, despite them, uh, these, these have come along. And I think that is an ongoing challenge for American, American democracy is the kind of leadership uh, challenge, the statesman challenge. And, and in fact, if you're readers are interested in this or your listeners are interested in this. I have another piece. I have a piece on this uh, that just came out on the idea of the statesman in uh, a very wonderful journal. I know you uh, probably know it. Many of your your listeners will know it. Liber- Leon Wieseltier's new journal, Liberties. Uh, oh, very fine okay. journal. Every, everybody sh- everybody should, should subscribe to it. It's very worth, uh, it's very worth uh, while wonderful essays in it, but wow. I've talked a little bit about the statesman. What it, what is the state? We've, we've lost even the language. Uh, even the term seems slightly uh, obscure to us uh, uh, today. Sure. So that's sort of where where I ended uh, this paper in National Affairs. Yeah, is this kind of leadership problem? 
Sure. And, and we can certainly include a link to, to your other essay in the show notes. Um, yeah. So just a final question, Stephen. Um, you know, I think you've laid out here in this conversation, your essay, um, a good case for appreciating the virtues of the Fellows Papers while also recognizing perhaps some of their omissions. Um, and, you know, we're talking about this idea that we haven't um, necessarily developed ways to, to groom uh, great future statesmen. What, what is the next step here for kind of a public and people involved in politics and government thinking about this? Is it thinking more consciously about um, teaching statesmen um, w- w- to have the right virtues? Like, I know you said that the founders toyed with this idea of a national university, but then that was viewed as not sufficiently kind of um, deferential to states' rights. Uh, wh- wh- what do we think about going forward? Just more ways to think consciously about grooming future statesmen? It's a great question, and if I, it's in a way the sort of sixty-four, as they used to say, the sixty-four thousand dollar question. I, I wish I wish I had an answer to it, but I think, um, what can I say? I mean, I'm a teacher. That's my job. I I teach, and so I think the one right I, I do talk about and largely relied on. Um, I'll give it a plug here. My friend George Thomas's wonderful book. Uh, the idea of a national university, how this was very widely discussed and lots of people, including Washington and many others, liked the idea of a kind of national university which would create, uh, establish a kind of leadership class. That's That would be its idea for all kinds of reasons. You can read about it in his book that, that, never, that never came to pass. Other countries that have such uh, institutions like like France, for example, it's a it's a, the results are sort of mixed. You know, I can see the the the, the advantages of it. I can see the, the disadvantages mm-hmm. of it. Um, but I think the only answer is that we need to do a better job in teaching people about the needs of statesmanship and mm-hmm. what the meaning of our constitution is. And uh, I try to do that. And I think there are a lot of people uh, now, uh, perhaps more more so, maybe, maybe being optimistic here, more uh, teaching, teaching fundamental texts, foundational mm-hmm. texts of the American experience, going into, in a serious way, the debates over the founding period and really taking a deep dive into these these texts that were not always av- even available uh, to earlier generations. Mm. And uh, whether, you know, whether it's having any effect or, or will have any effect is very, very hard to say. Uh, we can only hope. Sure. Uh, we can hope and we can pray. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And no, I think you're right, Stephen, that, yeah, you teaching and writing about these things and hopefully others um, is the first step. To, to doing that, to think in national about. affairs, everyone should read it's, national affairs. It'll be an, it's an excellent education. <laughs> yes. appreciate the plot. We certainly think so as editors. I, I learn a lot. Yeah. It's like a grad course every time I read an issue. So, so there you go. But absolutely. But, uh, but yeah, Stephen, thank you so much uh, both for writing this essay and joining us. This is a, a very illuminating conversation, I think. So we appreciate it. Uh, it's been my pleasure, Dan. Thank you very much for asking me and best of luck. Great. Thank you. Um, If you'd like to read um, Stephen's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. You can find more episodes of our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe and leave a review. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening. 